Blaise Pascal. This is a 17th century um, mathematician, physicist, author, inventor, Christian philosopher. He made this comment regarding loyalty. I set this down as a fact that if all men knew what each other said of the other, there would not be four friends in the world. He's a mathematician. He, he knows what four means. <laughs> but if our allegiance toward each other often tends to fall short, we must sow new habits in our devotion to God. Amen? For not only is he worthy of all of our confidence and all of our trust, the appropriation of his strength for our weakness, it depends on it. Are owning him. So here we are, Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, Jesus speaking to his 12 apostles, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you shall even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. In the first part of this chapter, you may remember if you've been with us, Jesus confines the ministry of the apostles to, quote, the cities of Israel. They're not to go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. But now he shifts his perspective for a moment in the future, when they will have the opportunity and the obligation uh, to bear witness to the Gentiles. Jesus wrote the book on truth in advertising, telling his disciples of all the woes. Anybody want to follow me? It's going to be hard. He didn't shrink back from full disclosure. The religious system, he says, of the Jews, they're not going to accept you. They're not going to accept this gospel of grace. No religious system does. Nor would the state protect them or support them. But all this would work together, he says, in giving them the opportunity to testify publicly of the love of God through Jesus Christ. Even before those secular authorities governors, and kings. How crazy. Think about it. I like what Robert Wakefield wrote. He said, this affords a striking proof of the presence of Christ. Who could have thought at that time that these despised and illiterate, that is, untrained fishermen, no theologians, no eloquent, you know, you know, people that are good in rhetoric or any of that, these are despised and illiterate, that they could excite so much attention and be called to apologize, that is, to make a defense for the profession of their faith before the tribunals of the most illustrious personages on the planet. Think about it. You wouldn't know of the apostles except for the association with Jesus. You wouldn't be naming your sons Peter and Paul, and John, and James. 
They were nobodies. Jesus is saying, you, you are going to stand before kings. You're, you're going to be standing before those that are at the top of the ladder. What was going through their mind? I'm sure he blew their minds often. They weren't to be obnoxious or obstinate troublemakers, he goes on to say, but shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. You know, they were to be wise and winsome. Because though sheep by themselves are defenseless against wolves, it is our good shepherd who has sent us into their midst. This is part of his plan, that we would actually go into the midst of wolves and not be afraid because he's going to guide them and protect them and use them for his glory. I love this particular image. Uh, does that little sheep look worried? What about this, the, these wolves? You know, one of them looks like he's already given up. <laughs> the other one's just kind of gazing into the eyes of the shepherd who's got a big whooping stick and an athletic stance and just so calm. And it's like that little sheep, that little lamb has nothing to fear. Amen? Do you, do you kind of get that sense? That's our posture in the world today with Christ as our Lord and Savior. Verse 19. But when they deliver you up, do not become anxious about how or what you will speak. For it shall be given you in that hour what you are to speak. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Repeatedly, we see this in the, in the book of Acts, how Peter and Paul we're given the boldness and the words to say before magistrates and kings. The Spirit abides in us. The Holy Spirit. Paul refers to us as temples of the Holy Spirit. That's what a Christian, that's what a believer is. So we're not to be anxious before any antagonist. God is with us and he's going to give us the words. Verse 21. And brother will deliver up brother to death. And a father, his child, this is unspeakable, unthinkable, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all on account of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. I think many of us recognize the breach that our faith has caused within our extended family. I've shared before when I, I grew up in a, in a religious system and went to parochial school and there was an accepted level of devotion. So you had your religious box that was over here and then you had your vocation here and you had, you know, your family and social, but they never mixed. And I knew that when I came, if I came out on the Lord's side, I would lose favor with my family. They would think I'd gone Jim Jones crazy. Right? Anybody experience that kind of pushback in your own family? We know what Jesus is talking about. Why is that? 
Why would a declaration of divine love, that's what we're, we're doing. God loves you. Ah! Why would it elicit such a response that we would be hated and called haters? Right? You, you read the newspaper, you would know. We're called haters. The church, we're haters. Why? It is for this reason, I believe. The faith of those who believe condemns those who believe not. I don't know who said this, but it's just so true. The faith of those who, can, uh, who believe, that the faith itself condemns those who believe not. I was at a picnic uh, in my neighborhood here uh, recently, and so I, I'm talking to Merle, one of my neighbors. And um, talk for a while. I always want to know about him. I always begin, well, tell me about yourself. What? And so I learned all about Merle. And then, of course, his, the natural response is, and what do you do? <laughs> and I told him how I found hope in Christ, and he changed my life. Then Robert, another man, comes in that knows Merle, and he's just swearing up a storm. And Merle's kind of getting uncomfortable, and finally says, hey, hey, Robert, this is also Robert. He's a pastor. And it's like this Robert just went, ah. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say, hey, watch your mouth. But no, I just, I just loving the guy. And I affirm my love for him. He's a little rough cut. He's for, the profanity just coming out shows that he's a profane man. That words mean you live outside the temple. You have no interest in the things of God. But I love him anyway because God loves him. But I'm telling you, just the fact that I was, had faith in God and paid attention to God brought condemnation upon this man's heart and mind. Just natural. I like the way that Jesus put it in John 3, 19. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Those who are a law unto themselves, those who deny God the right to be God. He's the creator. Of course, Potter can do whatever he wants with his clay. He has the right to be God, but those that deny him that right in their lives, they're naturally going to resent those whose love of and submission to him condemns them. It's uncomfortable to be in their presence. Really, the only time I feel fully accepted is at a wedding or a funeral. Then it's like, okay, and sometimes the wedding's even a little... Dicey, but the funeral, okay, here's a guy that has a hope in the afterlife. Let's, you know, we want to hear maybe a little bit about it. Here is our solace. The one, verse 22, the one who has endured to the end will be saved, will be delivered. First of all, Thank God that there's an end. 
He says, there's an end. The one who endures to the end. There's an end to the suffering. There's an end to this enmity with man. There is a day coming when we shall suffer no more. He promises to wipe every tear from our eye. There shall be no more death, no more mourning, crying, or pain. Revelation 21.4. So Mike McCoy mentioned this earlier. If you're going through a tough time right now, this too shall pass. Do you believe it? Take that to heart. And just quietly right now, you just say, thank you, Jesus. This is temporary. The second thing to thank God about in this text is that our sufferings can be endured. That's huge. This is one of my favorite verses. One of the first ones I learned as a believer. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation, that word can be translated as trial or adversity, has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. What a relief that is. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you are able, but with that trial will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. It's not going to take us down. It doesn't have to. In fact, I love what Job said. You know, if you think you have it hard, just take a moment and read the book of Job. It'll put things in perspective. But Job, through all of his suffering, came to the realization, he says, that once he has tried me, he has allowed this to happen for a reason. And once he has tried me, if I do not lose hope, I'm going to come forth as gold refined by fire. What happens when you refine gold with fire? Does it become more worthless? Obviously not. It becomes more precious. So, we are able to endure it. By God's power, we're able to endure adversity. And by God's grace, that his strength will be able to keep the faith. And through faith, we are saved. We are delivered even now from that which seems to crush our souls. He delivers us from that. And of course, for all eternity, I don't believe we can lose our salvation, but we can leave it. We all have the choice to trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And as long as we do, we have eternal security. At this point in our passage, we come to a verse that has a couple of different explanations. In verse 23, but whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. What is he referring to? This could refer to, some, some think, this immediate mission that Jesus is sending the apostles on. 
And he admonishes them to travel light. Don't take a bunch of stuff. Just get out there. Hit as many communities in Israel here in the Galilee as possible. And, um, you know, you're not going to be able to hit them all before I come and follow up in person. Some people are saying that, but that really doesn't fit as well because he's talking about them standing before Gentile kings. And he's telling him on this mission, you're not going to the Gentiles. You're not going to the Samaritans. You're going to keep this house of Israel. So I think a better explanation is that it's referring to Jesus coming in judgment as he predicts in chapter 24. It's an amazing chapter. A lot of good stuff between now and then, but we're heading that way. And Jesus talks about how because of the hardness of heart of the house of Israel that have rejected by and large their Messiah, he said, their city, their precious Jerusalem is going to be destroyed so that not one stone is left upon another on the Temple Mount. Those of us that were in Jerusalem recently will remember seeing this pile of rubble, right? This is at the base of the retaining wall that creates the Temple Mount. And it's a reminder that in AD 70, AD 70, the Roman general Titus put a siege on Jerusalem for three years, and then they broke in, broke into Jerusalem and tore down the temple until not one stone was laid upon another, just as Jesus predicted. In fact, whatever remnants survived of the house of Israel were scattered to the four winds and ceased to exist for almost 2,000 years. How do a people group maintain their identity without a homeland for 2,000 years? Nobody does. The most they will last is four or five generations before coming, becoming assimilated into the people group to which they live, but not the Jews. So that uh, May 14th, 1948, the UN voted them back into existence as a sovereign nation and in their homeland. All prophetic scripture uses Israel. Keep the, keep the clock. The nation Israel. And the fact that they exist ought to increase everyone's faith in this house. It's a God thing. They are his chosen people. Verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that we become as his teacher and the slave as his master. <clears throat> If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, that word means Lord of the Flies, referring to Satan, which these religious leaders were blaspheming Jesus by calling him Satan, that he, he casts out demons by the Lord of the demons, the Lord of the Flies, how much more the members of his household? You know, if they ridicule me and trash talk me, how much more are they going to lay it on you? Therefore, do not fear them. 
For there is nothing covered that will be reve- not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Again, the idea that association with Jesus as a disciple, a follower, a servant, a child of God, it's going to bring them under the same contempt that he would experience. Again, he's getting back to full disclosure with those who would follow him. But here again, he offers us this solace. The truth will win out. The truth will vindicate us. And the truth will deliver us. Verse 26, there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. In other words, no amount of persecution will keep the truth about Jesus Christ from prevailing. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. The doctrine that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners is no more to be wounded by the sword of persecution than the ocean to be scarred by the keels of navies. No one talked like Spurgeon, but he connected. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Period. He's going to judge the world says that every knee is going to bow and confess that he is Lord, either voluntarily or involuntarily, because that's a fact. All those who take refuge in him are going to be blessed forever. Therefore, we who come out on the Lord's side have nothing to fear. We've read the last chapter. We know we win. There will be skirmishes and battles that we don't win. You know, darkness pervades the land and and it, you see it. We see it unfolding. The love of many waxing cold. And all the things that Jesus described. But we win the war. We're not going to win every battle, but we win the war. And so he's trying to tell us, don't be afraid. However, there is one healthy fear that he says, if you're wise, you will adopt. Verse 27, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Now there's, don't be ashamed of the teachings of God, of the Bible, of the word of God. In them we find life and hope. Verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That makes sense. That's reasonable, rational. The most that anybody can do to us the most they could do is kill us. Would we agree? <laughs> they can't touch our soul. And the soul is the person. The soul is the sum of our will, intellect, and emotion. It's who we are. We live inside these mortal coils and our soul animates the body. But the body is not us. 
God, on the other hand, created all things and it will one day judge our immortal souls. He alone has the right and the power to send all those who refuse his way of salvation to a Christless eternity where there is no joy, there is no peace, there's no hope. He has the right to do that. It's not his desire, but it is the duty that his justice demands, and it will be done. Therefore, every wise person is going to care more about what God thinks than what man thinks. We're going to care more about what God thinks than, you know, the thumbs up on our social media page. If we maintain, oh, let me me say this. The, The cure for the fear of man is this fear of God, this reverential respect for God. When Oliver Cromwell was asked where his bravery came from, he replied, I've learned that when you fear God, you do not have any man to fear. Another contemporary of Blaise Pascal on the other side of the channel He's a military leader and political leader. Many would say he's the most important person in Britain's history who made it a republic. He went to battle. His life was often on the line. And they said, what? How do you explain this bravery? I've learned that when you fear God, you do not have any man to fear. If we maintain this reverential respect, which is what the word fear in the Bible means here, for God and the things of God, we have no reason to be afraid of man because a sovereign God is watching over us. And nothing can separate us from this love of God The Apostle Paul proclaims to the Romans under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8, beginning in verse 38, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, he's making a point here, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Another great verse to remember. It was such knowledge that steeled Peter after Christ's death and resurrection and his ascension. And now the day of Pentecost has come and they, they are just filled with boldness. <clears throat> and they get arrested. Hey, thank you, Merlin. Look at this. He never, he never moves away from that place of supreme support. Perfect temperature. Perfect. Thank you, Merlin. Peter gets arrested because now he's going off. Jesus told him at his ascension that, you know, to, to just wait for this promise of 
my Father. And the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And, and so they were waiting. And ten days later it came. In the upper room, they were filled with boldness, and then they just went off. Now, they're no longer waiting, they're talking about it, and they get arrested. <clears throat> Peter is appearing before the Supreme Court. The same guys that trumped up charges against Jesus to get him killed. If they kill Jesus, it's very likely they're not going to be intimidated about killing or shy about killing Peter. And they tell him, and they warn him, do not talk or teach in this man's name anymore. <clears throat> and then Peter famously replies, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For me and for us, we cannot stop speaking what we've seen and heard. I mean, he could assume that's the last thing he's going to be able to, to say on this, in, on this planet. Game over. These people have power to take your life, to arrange for it to be snuffed out. Was he afraid? If it's right to obey you rather than God, you be the judge. But we're not going to stop talking about what we've seen, what we've heard. And God protected them and allowed them to keep sharing the gospel. Jesus goes on to comfort his followers. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. You know, the great understatement. Something as seemingly insignificant as a single sparrow is not insignificant to God. Not one of these fragile common birds, we are told, falls to the ground without the father knowing without him allowing it to happen outside of his will. In fact, you are so carefully watched over, Jesus says, by the creator, that he knows the current number of hairs on your head, which needs to be continually updated. That database in heaven is continually updated because we lose hairs every day. Throughout the day. That's how intimately God watches over us. It's the point Jesus is making. And if you are a believer, as it says in Zechariah 2.8, whoever touches you touches the apple of your eye, of his eye. The apple of the eye is referring to that dark part, the pupil. And whatever you're staring out, that image is reflected in that dark pupil. He says, whoever messes with you is messing with the one I'm focused on right now. As if there was no, no one else on the planet. Like that shepherd looking at the wolves. 
You're not going to mess with this lamb. It would not go well with you, wolf. Jesus is our good shepherd. I love, I love the way Barclay puts it. William Barclay. The courage of the king's messenger, that's all those that bear witness of Christ, is founded in the conviction that whatever happens, that person cannot drift beyond the love of God. Do you believe that? He knows that his times, this believer, this Christian, are forever in God's hands, that God will not leave or forsake him, that he is surrounded forever by God's care. If that is so, of whom then shall we be afraid? It's a rhetorical question. No one is the only answer. Jesus is our good shepherd and our great caregiver, but his owning of us is dependent upon our owning of him. And we conclude with our passage today, verse 32. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. If we have truly embraced Jesus Christ as Savior of our souls, then we will not be ashamed of this good news, this gospel. For it is, as Paul says, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Why would we be ashamed of that message? Make no mistake about it. It is in the believing that the power of God saves a soul. But where there is true believing, that is trusting, faith, there is a joy, there is a peace, there is a hope that cannot and will not be denied. Give you a little history lesson here. Not long after the church began to spread, relentlessly throughout the Roman Empire, Pliny, the governor of Bithynia, this is in Asia Minor, wrote to Trajan, the Roman emperor, about how he was treating Christians in his province. Anonymous informers, these informants, we would call them today, uh, CI, confidential informants, had, had accused certain people of being a Christian. That, that accusation was worthy enough to have them arrested. Pliny tells how he gave these men the opportunity to invoke the gods of Rome, to offer wine and fragrance to the image of the emperor, and how he demanded as a final testimony or test that they should curse the name of Christ. Then he adds this, quote, None of these acts, those who were really Christians, can be compelled to do. We can't make them do it even under the threat of death. The church today is built upon the unbreakable loyalty of those who held fast to their confession of faith. 
as has often been said, of the martyrs, the martyrs, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. How thankful we are of their supreme loyalty to Christ. I want to give those gathered here an opportunity uh, to express your loyalty. <laughs> those also online want to give you an opportunity to demonstrate your faith. And because by it, I believe your loyalty will be strengthened. Your ability to confess Jesus before others, even in a hostile environment. Deal Moody, <clears throat> arguably one of the greatest evangelists of the 19th century, writes, The blessing of heaven will fall upon you and you shall have peace and joy if you confess Christ before a scoffing and mocking world. I remember the first time I testified about my faith in Christ, my knees smote together. I had a little speech all made up. But when I got on my feet, it all went from me. I just stood up for Christ. Satan afterwards said, what a fool you made of yourself. I've been making a fool of myself ever since. Do we have in the house any fools for Christ? We've got a couple. <clears throat> okay. I'm going to ask every fool for Christ to stand up. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah don't, I know, I, some of you may be intimidated not to stand up, but if you can do it here, this is just a baby step, right? Here, people will applaud you for standing up for Christ. But when you get into the scoffing, mocking world, having done it here, I think will maybe give you a little help and encouragement not to back down. I know, I know some real fools for Christ here. And I, and I say that with great admiration. <laughs> We're the light of the world, Jesus said. What hope does the world have without the church? Jesus is using us. How are they going to hear if we don't become the beautiful feet on the mountain that brings the good news. And of course, we're not going to win a popularity contest. We get that. But I'm encouraged. I don't know about the rest of you. I'm encouraged by seeing everyone on their feet. And I want to pray for us. Let me pray for us right now. Father, here we are making this declaration of faith and loyalty. I pray for those at home watching also, if, if you consider yourself or want to be loyal to God and to Christ, then you two stand up if you are able wherever you are. Maybe you've never stood up for Christ before, but you realize it is the right thing to do. 
Because his truth will prevail. I want you to stand up as well. You see, you see those of us that have hair and you know the number of hairs with Jan Staub? You know, that's really easy because he has <clears throat> no hair. But you care for us intimately. And so we trust you with our lives. We offer up our bodies a living sacrifice, Lord. Receive from our, um, you know, the way that we love people, the way that we care about others, even wordlessly, that we would be a fragrance of life to them. And then give us opportunities. Give us the boldness to say with Peter, <laughs> no matter what the world says and the podcasters and the movers and the shakers and the heads of state, whatever the scoffers and the mockers say, I will not stop speaking speaking with my mouth of the things that I've seen and I've heard that have elicited faith in me. God, baptize us afresh by your spirit with a boldness and a love and a loyalty in Christ's name. Amen.